0: Welcome to Foreign Office. This is Michael Weiss. I'm the Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. And this week I'm very excited to introduce two colleagues and friends, uh, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan. These are the foremost scholars and journalists in Russia covering the security services and the history of Russian intelligence operations. And their latest book, which if you haven't read, you should go out right away and, and buy it and read it. It's called The Compatriots, and I believe it's just been released in Russian uh, in the past week. So without further ado, Andrea and Irina, are you there?
1: Uh, hello. Hello, Michael. All
0: right. I won't say where we're, where you guys are at the moment. I, I think it's a, supposed to be a secret, but uh, I'm in rather chilly Forest Hills, Queens. The reason I had you guys both come on, well, twofold. Number one, obviously one of the biggest stories in international press at the moment is the Navalny poisoning. And I thought you two would know more about this than almost anyone uh, in terms of the use of Novichok a nerve agent invented by the Soviet Union and most notoriously before Navalny used against Sergei Skripal, the GRU defector to the West. Um, But also you've written a piece for me actually for a forthcoming publication on the history of Russian or Soviet state poisons. And I'm wondering if we can begin sort of with that and then work our way up to not just Navalny, but also uh, Vladimir Karamazov, my colleague at Free Russia Foundation, who was poisoned twice while traveling through Russia and exhibited some of the same symptoms of having succumbed to some sort of chemical nerve agent. But I I wonder, you guys have a whole section in your book, the compatriots on sort of the laboratory X or the poison factory that was created by Stalin's secret service. Can you go a little bit into the history of the uses of these toxins by the Soviet services and sort of what the purpose of using that sort of substance was versus, say, the bullet to the back of the head or a strangulation or some other violent form of uh, assassination?
1: Uh, Well, it looks like uh, Bolsheviks were excited about poisoning uh, right from the beginning. According to some estimates, uh, this lab was launched uh, in 1956, but there is an information that actually Lenin supervised the launching of uh, of the lab back in 1921. But nevertheless, we we know that even Lenin was interested in the idea of uh, poison. Probably, it, it goes back to the uh, First World War and uh, current experience of German using poison and gas in the Russian Empire. But it looks that uh, for, for the Bolsheviks, this poisoning uh, and poison per se became a Kind of choice dealing with uh, political exiles and uh, political enemies of the Kremlin. Because the lab, uh, which was launched in 1921 and uh, 1926, was attached from the beginning to the section of uh, the secret intelligence, uh, which was tasked to deal with uh, political exiles and mostly in Europe. Based in actually happened in uh, 1930, and uh, in Paris, uh, a group of uh, Ogeku agents snatched from the streets, uh, a very famous uh, general, Kutepov, uh, who was the head of the military wing of the Russian white emigration, and uh, he was poisoned and actually killed.
0: So w- when we think of, of the use of poison, we think this is a kind of invisible method of, of murdering somebody, right? I mean, it's designed to create enough distance between the, the murderer and his victim. And yet in the most recent cases, Navalny, Karamoza, Skripal, the use of, I mean, in, in the case of Navalny and Skripal, Novachuk or a substance in the family of the Novachuk nerve agents, uh, and in the use of Karamoza, I think it was alleged in your book, or he had told you the FBI at one point had told him it was like an organo phosphate. These are things that have more of a signature to them, don't they? Um, You know, one thing is like during the Cold War, the ricin pellets uh, on the River Thames to, you know, to get rid of uh, Markov, the Bulgarian defector. The use of strychnine, I think, was one of the ways that the UGPU was looking to get rid of Ignaz Rice, you know, the GRU defector, before they ended up machine gunning him to death in Switzerland. Why substances that really have such a direct link to the Russian state Apparatus, And if you can talk about that link itself, I mean, talk about the history of Novichok, talk about the history of Polonium-210, which was used to irradiate Alexander Litvinenko in London. What is the reason the Kremlin is using something that really can only be linked to one government on Earth?
2: Michael, you're absolutely right that usually poison is used to be invisible, to hide uh, a real killer. But in case of using Novichok and even Polonium to find it tent, that's not the same because everybody who uses this poison should be sure that races lead to Russians, because Novichok is a nerve agent that, that was developed in Russia, that was designed in Russia, and a lot of information, cool information about this NERF agent was published back in the 1990s, initially in Russia and then in the United States by one of the designers of this, a person who was involved in development of this NERF agent, Novichok. This is a man called Will Mirzayanov, now he lives in the United States, and he has posted the whole information about this nerve agent. And uh, we know the formula of Novichok, how much Novichok substance was produced, we know where it was stored. And even back in the 90s, there was a case when uh, Novichok was sold by one of the uh, researchers who developed, who had access to this nerve agent, was sold to mafia, and a banker was killed with Novichok. So if you want to kill somebody with Novichok, you should know that you will be, you will be found out, and your role will be will be visible for the whole world. So we can say that using Novichok means that uh, this is a special message to the world. We are doing this. We are killing these people. We are assassinating them, and we don't care that we will be identified. To me, it's clear sign from the Kremlin to the world that we intimidate you, and we will find you. And everybody should know that this is us.
1: I think the big problem with poisoning, and uh, here you see the difference with, uh, with a bullet, that poisoning is never only about removing a troublemaker. It's always about a message. And this message is that actually is all about how to make a lot of people to experience what actually are experiencing a poisoning. Person. Back in the Soviet Union, The KGB actually loves to make the family of a troublemaker or dissident suffering from the political choices made by this person. And poison is a great means to make everybody around the target suffering because it's not actually something which is done very quickly and sometimes people are dying for suffering for days or weeks and in case of Vladimir Karamurza he actually he spent in coma further remember several weeks and it was horrible experience for the entire family for his friends and um, well his father soon died and he was just uh, 59 years old Uh, He was a very famous journalist, very jovial and full of life. But nevertheless, what happened to his son, well, actually killed father. Uh, So it's, uh, to some extent, it's very effective if you want to target as many people as possible. And if you want everybody to understand this message, that it could be really, really devastating if uh, that kind of means used against a troublemaker.
0: That leads me to my, my next question. So a lot of people have asked, I think quite rightly, look, Novichok is this horrible weapon of mass destruction invented to murder and to contaminate whole sites that where it was used. But it doesn't seem, at least in the case of uh, you know Skripal and fortunately now Navalny, that to be effective in the sense that it ha- didn't eliminate the target, right? Uh, so is this an instance of, well, the West has known about this substance for so long that it's built up sufficient antibodies or it's created a defense mechanism in the form of atropine distribution on the site, et cetera, et cetera, that there's a way to save the victim or I mean, what you've just pointed out, that this is not a quick and easy death. This is a long, agonized ordeal, not just for the victim himself or herself, but for the family, the friends. It captures international attention. It's designed to be this kind of drawn-out affair. Is that sort of the dance that, if you are, say, the GRU, in the case of Skripal, that you have to kind of choreograph? I mean, how much to use so that you don't kill the person right away, but enough to use that eventually they do succumb? to you know, the, the effects of a nerve agent? And is this where the, the, the Russian government or the, the state organs or the intelligence services, whatever you wanna call it, is this where they fail? They don't actually measure it out correctly and that these people end up surviving? Is the goal even to kill them or is it simply to scare the crap out of them by, as you say, sending this message? Talk a little bit about what could easily be perceived as constant failure in the deployment of this particular murder weapon.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of controversy in, in the both cases because Skripal's case is especially suspicious in terms of how his assassination uh, attempt, of assassination was prepared because uh, the container where Novichok was threw out into the beam by killers, and from the beginning it seems like crazy failure. But this failure was just kind of him. Uh, it, it was clear that even Skripal would die. And whole operation uh, would be organized in a, in a proper way. It was clear that container would be found earlier and later, and it leads to Russia and it leads to the Kremlin. So uh, we discussed this Andre uh, a lot, this issue. And partly it seems like unconscious uh, desire to be caught. Yeah, it sounds very strange to me, but it, it looks like that. To be honest, I I also believe that uh, initially that it was uh, just a failure.
1: But to be honest, when we started researching the competitors and we needed to talk to uh, a lot of people based in Moscow and abroad, uh, in London and and New York, uh, what struck us that almost everyone uh, we spoke with mentioned at some point Novichok. And uh, I'm talking about an oligarch in exile or an oligarch who actually came to terms with uh, the Kremlin, uh, but who uh, lived, actually lives between uh, London and, and Moscow. Or I'm talking about a very high-ranking priest uh, who was uh, really helpful to bring uh, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad uh, under Moscow control. So, wow, these people should be, feel absolutely safe. But nevertheless, the usage of Novichok somehow changed the picture for them. And it looks like now all of them uh, needed to take it under, under the consideration that the situation completely changed, that they do not know the rules anymore. And that made them much more cautious and they contacts with other people and uh, they understand that somehow that landscape changed. And I think in this case, uh, this actually message and the usage of Novichok, uh, despite the fact that this script all survived, nevertheless was very effective because it, it prompts a lot of people to rethink their behavior, and their strategies, the way they talk to the
0: outsiders, the way they cooperate or not cooperate uh, with the Kremlin, all of that. I mean, in the case of Navalny, you've seen, I'm sure, the latest reporting that the original hypothesis that he was poisoned at the airport in Tomsk, I think it was, it turned out not to be true. Now his team went back to the hotel he was staying in and recovered water bottles uh, scattered throughout the room. There was one next to the bed. There were a couple, I think, on on a desk in the room uh, and managed to bring these with them to Germany for testing there. And that's apparently how German scientists or medical professionals figured out exactly what the substance was that was used. And let's just paint a picture for our listeners, because, you know, obviously, you can look in sort of case precedents in the history of uh, state assassinations in Russia. But you know, if you're an operative from and I want to even ask you who you think might have done this, which service was it FSB, was it GRU? Was it somebody else that might have been hired? If you're an operative tasked with using such a sensitive material as Novichok and you're going into a hotel in a fairly well-populated city even if it's in Siberia you have to get this just right, you have to put it on a water bottle that you know, the target Navalny is going to drink from presumably you don't care about collateral damage if other people are exposed to this material if they succumb to the same kind of symptoms if they ultimately die from nerve failure, etc. The questions I would have is how do you get in there? How do you how do you manage this operation? I mean, it is strange in the case of Skripal, you know, Salisbury went into lockdown mode, it was like, you know, something out of miniature Chernobyl in terms of a decontamination And then one innocent bystander, Dawn Burgess, did die when she recovered the perfume bottle where the Novichok had been stored by Mishkin and Chapiga, the two assassins. But it doesn't seem like there's been any collateral damage in the case of Navalny. And you have to think, like, members of his team went, they took these water bottles out, they brought them on board a plane, flew from Tomsk to Omsk. Then from there, they went to, I guess, or wherever, actually, because they went back to Tomsk. So they went from Siberia all the way to Europe. And nobody, it seems, in the, in the course of that sort of travel plan was infected. Or, or, or might there have been cases that, I don't know, the Russian state and state media are simply sweeping under the carpet? Obviously, this is a deadly substance, but it only hit one person and it nearly killed him. And it doesn't seem to have affected anyone else, rather miraculously.
1: Well, I think the difference between uh, Salisbury and uh, Tomsk is, uh, first of all, that in Salisbury, Russian agents were under, not under control, but under surveillance, uh, and uh, CCTV was everywhere, and that's why we know that these two guys uh, were walking around the uh, building and all that. But in Tomsk, the Russian security services uh, had full control, and uh, we know that, thanks to to the report published almost immediately after we got the information about the poisoning by Moskovsky Komsomolets, one of the most popular city papers in Moscow but, uh, well, citing the FSB, actually, that uh, the whole team of Navalny was monitored and uh, by secret agents uh, right from the beginning to the end and they knew everything about every move uh, his team actually did. And that put uh, the security services in a much more uh, favorable position because they could decide where to use this poison, how to use them, uh, what the moment to choose. And, uh, of course, with hotels, uh, it's much easier than with, uh, say, cars or streets because it's a very long Soviet and Russian tradition that the hotels in, in our country, they should cooperate with the security services. Uh, and uh, they should provide access to uh, the cameras, to, to the rooms, to the floors. It's just uh, how things work in our country. One thing which we need to understand that That's actually the reason why the FSB, for instance, uh, has such a huge regional apparatus that it's not about, for instance, uh, it's completely incomparable with the FMI-5 with the central headquarters and just few offices around the city, uh, around the country. In Russia, it's always about big representation in regional uh, towns and cities. Why? Because it's regional departments. They are tasked to establish very close connections with hospitals, hotels, uh, well, uh, transport companies, airports, because we need to have an option to do whatever we want to do if uh, uh, the opportunity arises. And yeah. that's exactly what happened.
2: This is very important that all surveillance video uh, disappeared after Navalny left the hotel and his colleagues tried to get access to this and they, yeah. they failed because I want to say that according to Navalny's Navalny colleagues, the bottle of water was not the source of poison. Uh, Navalny just left some traces on bo- on this bottle because he drank from it, but it's not the sauce. The sauce might be I don't know. It might be handle on the door or something like that. We just we just don't know. That's why bottle was not dangerous for people. Uh, the bottle didn't con- didn't contain a lot of amount of Novichok.
0: So that's why it didn't contaminate the people who brought it. Didn't it
2: here. contaminate people on the plane, and it didn't contaminate. Uh, fortunately, it didn't con- contaminate Navalny colleagues.
0: I mean, the PPE was very minimal—latex gloves and and plastic Um, bags—not exactly the kind of stuff you'd want to be. Touching a nerve agent with. Let me ask you as to the timing of this. So you know, there's obviously a lot of speculation. Nobody really has a a definitive answer. I don't expect you to have a definitive answer, but I'd love love to hear your theories as to why, after all these years, all of Navalny's exposes of the Siloviki and oligarchs, people who who had ample reason to want to see him gone, including Prigozhin, who I think was taunting him after he was poisoned uh, and talking about having bought up some of Navalny's debt and so on. Why now? Was it Related to elections which just happened? Was it related to whatever the investigation he was doing in Tomsk was about or stakeholders, political power brokers he might have pissed off? Or was it simply that's it his his time is up or we've decided now we want to make a show of here's what happens if you really challenge the kremlin and you're simply unafraid to leave the country or to make the kind of compromises uh, and accommodations that others in, in somebody like his position would have made by now what, what is your theory as to why they chose now to poison him uh, we, we cannot have a definite answer because we are outsiders we are not
1: the officers of uh, russian security services and of, of course there might be some Tactical reasons, for instance, the elections, and we, uh, we knew, at least started in May, that um, the Kremlin was really nervous uh, about elections in, in September. But to be honest, it's really difficult to understand why, because we, we didn't expect anything really big happening, especially in Moscow, it was mostly a regional story. And uh, of course, you might say that uh, what's going on in Belarus and Khabarov makes them really nervous. Uh, but uh, there are some big shifts which we see seeing now. It's uh, first of all the constitutional amendments we, which we got This big change unleashed something in the Kremlin because we got so many horrible Developments after that we got very first time we got a journalist accused of uh, being a spy. Mm-hmm. It never happened before uh, And we know that uh, I mean we had the, our personal history here, so we know how these things worked before. It happened,
2: it happened before, but it uh, finished. Uh,
1: did nothing actually, because it was impossible to accuse a journalist of uh, disclosing state secrets, because in theory, a journalist uh, has no access to state secrets. Mm-hmm. Now right. it's changed. We got this uh, big offensive on Navalny's foundation, which was well, actually bankrupted uh, by precaution, and uh, Navalny was forced to actually to close it down. It's something uh, we didn't see before. So it looks like something happened with these amendments, and something which uh, I don't know, which changes the the Kremlin behavior. And now we need to get used to new rules in our country. And um, the biggest problem we do not know what are these rules now. It's mm.
2: always an open question: why it happened now, but not five years ago or in five years? Because we you know why: why the Kremlin tried to kill Navalny because he is the most famous opposition politician in the country. Because he is a household name, and his and his foundation investigations into the Kremlin's corruption, Kremlin's top officials' corruption, they went viral and they got millions, millions of views uh, on YouTube. That's why Kremlin decided to, to do this. But why, why now? We don't know. Because the situation in Russia quite calm today. That's not like it was a few years ago when there was a protest, or eight years ago. So, and constitutional amendments that allowed Putin to be in power for many, many years ahead uh, was also adopted just in the summer, so we, we don't know why now. It was extremely disturbing for the Kremlin, and Belarus is also quite disturbing the situation for Putin himself. These people in the Kremlin, and Putin personally, that might be extremely nervous about this, and they just may went some irrational.
0: And to the idea that, well, okay, um, even if it was Russian state actors responsible, doesn't necessarily go all the way up to the top to the Russian president. What do you say to that? If, it's, if it was indeed Novichok, which was used, and now the Germans, the French, and I think the Swiss have confirmed it, what does that mean in terms of who gave the order? Can Novichok be acquired by semi-rogue actors working for the GRU or the FSB? Or does, does that need authorization from the presidential administration, given the substance involved?
1: To be honest, I got a bit tired of this argument because I've been hearing this uh, argument for many, many years, but right? we have some rogue, loosey elements, and they just wanted to please either of all Putin, and these two guys, we have nothing to do with all these assassinations. The big problem here is we just need to understand that Russian security services in 2020 are not the same we had, for instance, five years ago, 10 years ago. Yes, maybe 15 years ago it was possible for some rogue elements and security or intelligence agencies to do something independently. But I would say, but starting in 2016, it became very, very unlikely. Why? Because in 2016, actually in late 2015, Putin made it very clear to the Russian bureaucracy, including secret services, that he doesn't tolerate anymore any independent moves. And uh, he made it in a very effective way. He started selective repressions. Uh, We got uh, ministers, deputy ministers, governors in jail. But we also got f generals in jail. And why? Just to teach them a lesson and to explain them that the rules changed. So I would say right now, the idea that somebody in security services or intelligence agency would decide to do something on their own and uh, without um, a consultation or getting uh, an authorization from very top. I would say it's
2: very, very unlikely. It's also very unlikely that poisoning of Navalny could be, uh, could be without Putin's in. We don't know what the procedure uh, for such a thing in the Kremlin, but uh, it's very unlikely that the decision was made by by, by the chief of the who or the FSB. That's very unlikely. They should be proved from the very top. And what we, to be honest, have seen uh, over the last
1: few years when we get some leaks, how things are actually done, Uh, you see uh, the science of micromanagement almost everywhere. For instance, when uh, a a mayor of a small town near Moscow uh, decided to rebel and to fight some some criminal policy, the FSB started cooperating with uh, and actually consulting with the administration of the president, no less, to decide what to do about him, and Mm. he was sent to jail. So you see that even this small issue, which could be solved by uh, at the regional level, nevertheless was brought to the very top and the impression of the president was consulted, top generals of the APSB were consulted, and finally they take a a joint, uh, joint action against him.
0: So such a local authority being kicked up all the way to Moscow, there's no way that taking out the leader of the Russian opposition wouldn't get the same kind of telephone treatment, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And because we
1: have such a long history of uh, these kind of things and uh, after every uh, assassination attempt successful or otherwise we didn't see putin punishing people uh or doing anything about it he just uh, he, he kept covering up all them it's just very implausible that it would be a local independent action uh it just no i i think it's highly unlikely
0: do you think at all that whatever the international, particularly the European response is going to be to this, uh, sanctions, there's a debate, although it not at a very high level, it seems, about uh, ending Nord Stream 2, now raging in Germany. Do you think that if the response to Navalny's poisoning is something very tepid, uh, that that in any way weighs on the calculus of Putin and whoever else is advising him in these matters to, hey, we have essentially carte blanche to use Novachuk again? Uh, and maybe, again, we'll go beyond our borders, not in, stay internally, and it will go after some defector or some other enemy of the state that we name. Does, does the West's response to these Russian provocations have any impact on the frequency or even the escalatory nature of those provocations? Or is it all just decided, in your view, based on other factors?
2: To me, the West's response to all... Assassinations, as was conducted by the Russians abroad, was too weak until 2018 When Skripal was poisoned and his daughter. I mean, the personal sanctions against the people who were involved into the Kremlin's corruption, and also not only uh, not, not only on the Kremlin officials, but also the oligarchs and businessmen, and all people who are involved with what Kremlin is doing in Russia and abroad. These sanctions could be extremely effective. It can help uh, to create an opposition inside Putin's cycles because these people. These oligarchs and top officials that want to, be, they want to to save their money in the West, they want to have their accounts in the West, they want to visit their, their apartments in Spain and United Kingdom and whatever they are. And they don't want to be isolated, they want to be a part of a regime like Muammar's Qaddafi regime, they want it to be accepted in the West, that's their idea, they're not... Crazy money They don't, similar to the Stalin circle. They're not Bolsheviks. They're not Communists. They don't have any idea at all behind their activities. They want to be, they want to be accepted. They want to be wealthy. So such kind of sanctions, personal sanctions against these people, could be extremely effective. One thing
1: which I, uh, I think sometimes uh, blurs the picture is uh, we think sometimes that sanctions are ineffective because. Uh, seem to be not a very good tool to slow down uh, the Kremlin operations. But the problem here is that it looks like Putin himself is prone to miscalculation. Sometimes he is really late understanding actually at what stage uh, the relations with the West are. It's not only about relations, but even uh, about some technologies. Look at the uh, recent history. In 2016, Putin was very proud of uh, Russian hackers, and uh, he was apparently under the impression that at this stage, in 2016, it was absolutely impossible to identify hackers and to attribute the cyber attack. And he was probably right by uh, if it was uh, 2010. So he was led uh, for six years. In 2018, when Skripals were poisoned, it looks like he was still thinking that we are living in 2006 when Litvinenko was poisoned and there was no reaction and the UK wanted uh, to keep it very quiet. And it looks like now uh, some people in the Kremlin, they still believe that we are at the stage where you can say, look, uh, we are doing something in our, on our territory about a Russian official. so why should you care? And it's not anymore this stage. Uh, the thing's going actually quite fast in a new direction. And it looks like they're always a bit late at understanding that.
0: That's interesting. And that's something that doesn't get discussed very much in the Western debate about, you know, is Putin simply a brilliant tactician or is he a master strategist? It sounds to me like he's neither. He's kind of, you know, reacting behind the curve, as it were, on things and not, it, not kept abreast of, of the latest either international or national developments in his own country. Fascinating. Well, I, I think we're going to leave it there because we've reached our half hour mark. This is a podcast that's devoted to Russian influence operations, military interventions, and intelligence activity. And I I know that you guys are, uh, well, certainly um, experts on the the last subject, but also extremely fluent in the first two. Um, And we'd love to have you back. Wow. We're always uh, happy to talk uh, with you, uh, Michael. So, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Great. I don't know. And and to my listeners, um, please do go out and purchase uh, Andre and, and Irina's book, The Compatriots. Um, I put a review of it up on Free Russia Foundation's website, also did an essay in the New York Review of Books about the Trotsky assassination, which is treated quite extensively and in great uh, depth and detail uh, in that book. And uh, it's just a fascinating account of how the Kremlin has dealt with ethnic Russians abroad, going back to, I think, even the bizarre era, but certainly the Leninist period, Stalinist period, and then right now under the, the Putin regime. So, Andre Arena, uh, we're going to leave it there. Um, thanks very much. And tune in next time to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. Have a good night.